0: You are listening to an HD Smartcast original.
1: Hello, and welcome to season two of Dreamers and Unicorns or HD Smartcast original. Now, this is a show about leadership, talent, culture, skills, and everything that shapes our world of work. In each episode, you will meet a dreamer or a unicorn. So who is a dreamer? Of course, you know that one. I know you will say that anyone with an unfulfilled dream is a dreamer. But who is a unicorn? Well, you know, think about it like this. A unicorn is the next big thing. Everyone talks about them. You know, they attract admirers and leave us wondering, how do they do it all? They take the road less traveled and that becomes a source of inspiration to everybody else. In this podcast, I want to acknowledge and thank our knowledge partners, the Society for Human Resources Management, which is the voice of everything which is important in the world of work. Our other knowledge partner is Tagged, that is T-A-G-G-D a digital-ready platform that makes talent acquisition on demand a reality. And me, I am Abhijit Bhadari. I work with organizations and leaders on their leadership, talent, and culture. This is just the subject of a book that I've recently written, which is called Dreamers and Unicorns. I also coach individuals who are navigating shifts in their career. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? The answer to that may be blowing in the wind, but how many copies of a book do you have to sell to call it a bestseller? Or should you self-publish? Do you really need an agent? Can you live off your royalty? Will I ever win the Booker Prize? Um, Well, maybe the answer to the last two questions is a big no. But if you ever have thought about any of these questions, then today's episode of Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0 is for you. Today's episode features VK Kartika who is joined by her two dogs who periodically share their views when Kartika gives a wrong answer to the difficult questions I have posed. So please listen in and watch out for the dogs. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Dreamers and Unicorns. And today we have uh, with us someone who I have had a long association with as a writer. So she was responsible for publishing two of my works of fiction one nonfiction, uh, which was called Do Not Hire the Best, and my most recent book, Dreamers and Unicorns. I thought that if there is one person who can give you a perspective of having uh, worked in um, three of the biggest uh, names in Indian publishing, whether it's Penguin, HarperCollins, and then, of course, most recently, Westland, where she started her own imprint, uh, we are talking to VK Kartika. Kartika, welcome to the show of Dreamers and Unicorns, Season 2.
0: Thank you, Abhijit. I'm delighted to be here.
1: What does it mean to have an imprint? What is that?
0: So I think in publishing, where there are so many thousands of books being published, literally thousands of books every year, it's a little hard to make out one from the other for the marketplace. And even within a publishing house, I mean, you have so many editors trying to publish different segments, but also sometimes very similar segments. So how does a literary agent or how does a writer even know where they belong? Where does their book belong? So I think Mm -hmm. from that point is where an imprint starts to make sense. Uh, For instance, if you say Alan Lane, which is one of the oldest imprints, of course, then you have a certain um, identity attached to it. You have a certain quality attached to it and certain set of themes and ideas attached to it. So you know what that stands for, and then you choose to maybe identify with it and go and you know, seek to be published by it. An agent might say, I'd rather my book belong to this imprint than something else, which does not have that same pedigree, perhaps, or um, the kind of books it publishes are not that. So if you looked at, a, say, a Mills and Boone, right, as an imprint mm-hmm. as well as a publishing house, then you would know instantly what that is. Uh, whereas if I said, okay, now, so Mills & Boone, I think now is owned by uh, HarperCollins. So if I said HarperCollins, I mean one thing which is not really with a face, right? It's a, it's a big thing. But if I told you Mills & Boone, then you know what it is. So okay. in that sense, an imprint becomes the most identifiable face of that publishing house in that particular segment of publishing
1: And that is uh, something that uh, the editor decides? Is that how it is?
0: As in whether a book should belong there or somewhere else?
1: Yes, yes. Um, Who decides that?
0: It's interesting, actually, because, uh, as I said, an agent might choose to offer a submission to a certain imprint because of what they know about it. Um, At the same time, there are big publishing houses that say imprints can compete with one another. So oh, if I'm working for a big publishing house like, say, PRH, and I have multiple imprints within that, then if an agent mm-hmm. says permission to the publisher, uh, it could be that five imprints decide they want it and they will all compete for it. Uh, and I think the way it normally works is when you reach right up to the end and there's a sort of auction going on and the final two or three that are left are actually part of one publishing house, then they decide internally and don't. You know, compete because one of them is going to get it. So they decide internally who might be the right person for that or which imprint. But otherwise, it is really like a, a sort of more focused brand within. So the publisher or the agents or the editors themselves would know that this sort of book belongs here and not there. Very rarely, I think, would you find that conflicting
1: if you worked with an author in the past, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. does it mean that uh, all the books of that author would uh, come into that same imprint or it doesn't so that's interesting have to
0: because be? No, because um, we struggle with that a little bit when it happens to be, uh, for instance, we published a book by Perumal Murugan, the Tamil writer, the wonderful <laughs> Tamil writer. When we launched Context, which is the imprint that started at uh, Westland, Perumal Murugan's. Unachi was one of the first books we published and got a lot of attention and it went on to get shortlisted for prizes and all the rest of it, and actually became uh, an international book and was one of the best books of the year, and was on the National Book Awards in the US and all of that. So now you've got all of that, which we had attached to context as an imprint. Uh, but when his next book was acquired, uh, Estuary, which we published very recently again, uh, by that time, we had decided internally that we are building an Indian language publishing division, which is called Eka, which will do all the translations and the originals in other languages. So it's a very pan-Indian list and it does Malayalam and it does Tamil and it does Hindi. And we said all the translations will belong to Eka. So when Murugan's next book came in and Estuary was ready, we stood by that and we said, let's put it into Eka, though the first book was in context. because. Long term, that makes sense. So I think there are some cases where you would juggle that, or for instance, if somebody did a really literary novel and then went on to write a crime thriller. Um, Now, usually there is at least one imprint in a publishing house, for instance, in a large publishing house, certainly, where crime, thrillers, popular fiction might have one imprint and literary might have another. Now, you don't want to confuse the reader or the buyer, the retailer. uh, So you might just choose to divide up that writer into two different imprints. Ideally, if they were one kind of category of writing, then you would leave them in one imprint forever.
1: Mm, Okay. And, um, you know, the most important question I think I forgot to ask you in the beginning, which is that, is it possible for somebody to make a living as a writer? Is that a career one can pursue?
0: If you won the Booker Prize, maybe if you have won um, (laughs) something hugely, like, you know, rich, or if you are a writer who, um, say, let's take, I should imagine that someone like a Ruskin Bond, for instance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually writes for a living. I mean, he gets published a lot. He sells a lot. He's beloved of uh, children and adults. And for a long time, I think that's what he's done and will continue to do. Uh, I imagine that uh, someone like an Arundhati Roy does get substantial royalties and can, if she chooses, to live on it. But for the most part, I remember reading some time ago that maybe 5% of the writers who around the world who can afford to live off their royalties, the rest would have to do a day job or something else.
1: Mm. So, so, you know, I always think that uh, when somebody buys the book Uh, Mm. You get royalty. But when Mm. somebody reads the book, you get loyalty. So you have to choose.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, ideally, you shouldn't have to choose. The person who reads should be paying and you should be getting royalty. But we all know that WhatsApp has taken over. And every day when a big book is published anywhere in the world, there are thousands of people, millions, I should imagine, who would potentially be able to just get a free PDF on WhatsApp. And it's up to them and their conscience to say, no, I'm not reading this and this is illegal. And this is not getting anybody anything good. So delete it and do not share it. But I'm afraid not everybody does that. So there are huge losses to piracy like that.
1: Hey, wait, could it be that the world of publishing will go the same way that music has gone? Think about it. Music was first limited to, you know, you had to buy the album or the CD. And then you had to re- actually get the required hardware and software before you could really listen to music. Until the time that we got rid of all the devices and settled for a fixed fee and put all the music in the cloud, so now you can listen to any song anywhere, anytime, either on your laptop or on the phone or on the tablet. Is this where books will go? Could it be good for writers? Would it be? And these are interesting scenarios for us to think about. But let me get back to the question that I wanted to ask Kartika. And, you know, I want to just take the uh, listeners through the journey from um, the manuscript to the bookshelf or, if you will, uh, to the bestseller list. We'll talk about all of that. But is the route different if you are uh, writing fiction or nonfiction? Uh, I mean, to say that if I write a work of fiction, maybe it's poetry, maybe it's a story, maybe it's a travelogue or whatever, you know, um, Mm -hmm. versus, let's say, a business book or nonfiction multiple Mm -hmm. ways. Is the route different or, you know, once you give it to the publishing house, it's the same process for both?
0: In a sense, it's the same because once you've given it to the publishing house, obviously, it has to go through the usual route of copy editing, structural editing, design, you know, putting it into the market, all of
1: that. Now, what is the difference between copy editing and structural editing? Explain to me. So,
0: structural editing is where we get a manuscript and we look at it Overall, we say, does the structure work? Does the storyline work, say, if it's fiction? Does the arc of the narrative work? Does it begin in the right place and end in the right place? And is the middle as interesting as it should be? Or say, um, that character who's written into part two, does he need to be there at all? Can we knock him off because he's not adding any value? Or if we say, okay, this book works overall, but I think you need at least five more things to strengthen it. Uh, Or you might say it's beautiful, but it's 200,000 words and really we can't publish something that big. It will never get priced into the market, right? So we need to cut it down by 100,000 words. How are we going to do about this? So there's all of these things which are at the structural level. Once you've got all that right um, and the size of the book is right, the narrative is right, the arc of the story is right, characters are in place... Then you go to the next round of editing where you're actually looking at the lines, the sentences, the words, and you say, is every word in the right place? Is there anything that should not be there or is misused or could have been better used? So then you look at the finer things Um, and then you look at the final stage, which is the proofreading, where you're looking at all sorts of things like consistency of usage and that typos, and uh, you're looking at punctuation and things very, very closely. So there's three Uh, rooms that
1: every book has to go through. Okay. Um, When you alluded to the role of an agent, you know, what is the role of a literary agent? And, uh, you know, do you really have to go through uh, an agent? Why can't I submit directly to, say, a publishing house? What does that mean?
0: Absolutely submit directly to a publishing house in India. In the US and the UK, I think they're pretty much closed to that idea for the most part. I'm not sure all publishers are, but a lot of publishers are. They just don't have the resources or the time to weed through every single submission that comes their way. So the literary agent is really a filter. It gives the editor who's getting the submission the confidence that somebody has already gone through it and said that this is something that needs to be and should be read and possibly published. So that level of filtering is what editors expect from the agent. And I think from the writer's point of view, it allows them to make a sharper pitch for the book. If I'm going to an agent and I'm saying, here's my book or here's a proposal, here are some chapters, a good agent will be able to say that, okay, you need to perhaps make some changes to make it more attractive for the market, or maybe you need to redo something. And anyway, when you're doing the pitch, then here are the five things we should be suggesting to the publisher that these are the reasons why we think this book is right for this time. So it's a kind of collaborative thing between the writer and the agent when the publisher gets the manuscript. There's a sense of somebody has thought through this very carefully in a professional sort of way, because the writer may not really know what the market requires or what the market is into these days. They've written what they want to write. Now, how do you take that from a writer's creative expression? to a business proposition. That's what the literary
1: agent tries to do. When you write a story, should one be looking at uh, the uh, creative part of it and just not worry about, is the market going to like it? Or should you keep the market in mind and r- write something that you know is going to sell? Um, what do you think? You no,
0: know, I think that's probably where this uh, non-fiction fiction difference really comes in. I think if you're a novelist or a short story writer or a poet, I definitely think the best writing comes out of writing what they want to write and mm-hmm. feel the urge to write. You can't really trim your fiction to the market. I mean, you might be broadly able to say that look, uh, Bridget Jones is a great hit and there's, you know, no such book in India. And therefore isn't it time to write a really fun sort of chick thick as they used to call it in those days, romance, romance, whatever, and maybe there's space for the market. So that kind of, Correlation to the market, I think, works even for fiction, where you're seeing a gap and editor and writer are saying, hey, I can write to that. I can see now that women love to read that. And I have something I could tell. So that's one way of doing it. But then if you sat down and you said the last five books that worked were set in Chennai, in whatever, in a business house, and the uh-huh. crime was X, Y, Z. Now I'm going to try and you know work towards that because that became a hit. Mine can become a hit. I think that way lies disaster. Then you do not write the way you could have written. So Mm. I'd say Mm. in fiction, keep the market in mind, but keep it in mind at a distance, not so close up that you're going to be madly influenced by exactly what you think it requires. Because the market is moving and the mindset of the reader is changing. And by the time you write that book, I'm assuming it would take any writer at least six months to write a book. If they do that, they will take another eight months to get the book into uh, the system. Another year for sure. By the time everything is done and it's in the market. And a year is a long time. I mean, it could literally, as you say in your book, it could be before Corona and after Corona and you've got a whole (laughs) new set of readers and what are you going to do with your book that was tailored to a year ago, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't think it makes sense. In fiction, it doesn't. In nonfiction, I think it's very important to keep the market in mind for instance, the biggest story in our time is about, say, communal harmony and mm-hmm. uh, people not being allowed to live the way they want to, then if you're a non-fiction writer working in that sector, especially if you're working in development, if you're working in with society or politics or law or whatever, you will respond to that, that world around you and you will write about that and to readers who are interested in that. And that kind of thing, I think, is not as time bound, because these social changes, social movements, etc., they take a t- lot of time to come to reality, and then they are spread out longer. So you're likely to be writing a book even over a year or two. You will still be writing what matters, and will continue to matter. So there's a certain way in which you can use your nonfiction understanding of the market. Um, there's the other sort of quickie West nonfiction market which also is based on what's going on around you, but their timing is crucial for instance, if a plane has been hijacked right and mm-hmm. it's back and the captain has obviously got a narrative to, which is special because he was there um then you want that book to be written and you want it out in the next few months because well two years from now this may be old hat there may be lots and lots of interviews that have happened with the captain and with the crew and with the passengers mm-hmm. so what's new in the book? So there again, you're actually publishing to the market, but you have to publish really quickly to make it work. Um, Mm. So each one to their own, as they say.
1: One of the biggest myths about writing is that it is viewed as a purely solo exercise. You write by yourself. Actually, you don't. If it takes a village to raise a child, it really takes an army to write a book because writing is a very, very, very collaborative process process. The structural editor looks at the storyline, the narrative structure, the characters, the number of characters that you have. Do you have one too many? The size of the manuscript and everything else. The copy editor, the punctuation, uh, you know, typos, checking for all of that, the designer, the sales team. And of course, the biggest difference between uh, when you publish a book by yourself and when you go through a publishing house or a literary agent is the access to this huge talent pool that chisels your work into something that the people like to read. The literary agent, the editorial team, the designers, they are all working with the writer to actually design an awesome reading experience for the readers. This team turns a creative expression to an absolutely fantastic business proposition that makes money for both the publishing house and the writer. You know, you worked with a range of writers. Who's the biggest writer that, uh, you know, the names that we all know and... uh... Who would that be?
0: You know, the the biggest is kind of an interesting question to ask any editor because we have these slots in our head, I think, which instantly go to like that one I really liked working with, this one, like, you know, won all these prizes and that's brilliant. And somebody else where you felt you did a lot to make that book better, maybe, uh, or you helped it along in a really interesting way. So there's all of these bigs in our head, which are not necessarily the big of the sales or revenue or market. But I suppose if I had to combine the big with the big impact, I suppose that would be the White Tiger by Arvind Dadiga, because that wow. was truly, like you know, it just blew everything away for a bit and uh, went on to win the Booker Prize, which was extraordinary for us at HarperCollins. We just, uh, I mean, I just joined Harper in 2006. And I think White Tiger happened in 2008 or so. And soon after that, I mean, the Booker happened. So it changes the fortunes of a publishing house, something like that. Because you're suddenly one of the publishing houses that writers who are literally prize winning, they say, OK, you know what to do with a book to take it to success, maybe, which is completely not um, the truth in some ways, because actually the Booker Prize is given in the UK. The publisher there is, you know, pitching it there. And the judges and jury are there. We're just sitting here. We're not really doing anything to make that happen. But it's all about perception. And uh, The White Tiger was fantastic. It sold brilliantly. It's now going to be made into a movie. And, I mean, Arvind, like, became one of the people in my life from then who I consider, like, you know, really special relationship. So, yes, in all of those ways, that is probably a book that I would think uh, made a huge difference in my life.
1: I think your dog has also joined the interview. I'm so sorry. uh, Which which, which is just fine. (laughs) When when somebody wins the um, Booker Prize kind of thing, is it a bit like saying that, uh, uh, you know, when a business house or an employer has Mm. a star performer, Mm. a star employee, Mm. you know, Mm. everybody wants to go and work there in that particular Mm. field, Mm. you Mm. know? So Mm. it's like if a university gets a Nobel Prize, Then everybody, you know, all the academics want to flock. It's a bit like that, is it? Yeah,
0: it's a bit like that. And it's a bit like that with the earlier conversation we had about imprints as well. Like when we built context Mm -hmm. at Westland, we um, hoped that it would be a list that would be a very political list. Like we said that even the fiction we do, we'd like it to be something that's uh, appealing to the urgency of our times, responding to the times we live in. And we're going to make sure that it's literary, really well edited, sharply designed. Like there was a certain curatorial uh, sort of skill we hope to bring to it. My colleague Ajita and I, and generally we work closely with the list now. Uh, And that's so when we go out or when writers or agents approach us, they know that we're looking for subjects like that. And so it's easier to communicate that. I mean, have that relationship built on the strength of what we stand for. Not just the one book or the two books or whatever, but as a range and as a kind of a collection of ideas that we would like to take. So, so we then, have... um,
1: you know, uh, Karthika, I didn't intend to put pressure on you, but uh, given the fact that you made the Booker Prize happen for Arvind Adiga, <laughs> I'm going to hope that for my book, it's going to also be <laughs> the Booker Prize and nothing short. <laughs> and I can then, as you said, you can... Uh, you it's know, a literary fiction
0: for the Booker Prize, not
1: uh, <laughs> books that show us our business world. Why? But simply, why? why no. Why? Why? Why would you want to put so many conditions right away that no, you can't win <laughs> the Booker Prize because? You, oh gosh. Okay. So we'll the thing the we need Prize. to do now, Abhijit, is to. Uh,
0: take our market into much more diverse spaces. Like if you're writing for exactly. Westland Business, we <laughs> 100,000 people to read business books. So how do we do that? You tell okay.
1: me. <laughs> I don't know. You have to ensure that I win, if not the book a Prize, but something like that. Okay. And then, then we'll Done. get there. Um, I want to sort of ask you this whole question. A lot of people say that um, they've submitted, uh, you know, their manuscript to a publishing house. And should they worry about the fact that somebody's going to steal their idea and give it to another writer to write the book? Does that happen? I really think it
0: does not happen. I think the whole publishing industry runs on trust. We have nothing much to do in terms of uh, offering large sums of money to our writers or uh, promising them riches for the rest of their lives, but we can promise them trust. And that's how it all works, whether it's an agent sending us a manuscript or a writer sending it to us or us sharing it internally with other readers and editors. Um, We don't even sign NDAs for the most part. There's an occasional book where something needs to be very carefully kept. I remember a long time ago where we were at Penguin, uh, David Davidar was publishing Narasimha Rao's autobiography, written as fictional. But Rao had just sort of ceased to be prime minister. And I remember the sort of shroud of secrecy around everything to do with the book including the title, the cover, all of that till the right time because they didn't want it going out at all. Um, There are embargoes when a Harry Potter went out. There there would be gunmen Mm -hmm. with boxes standing to make sure nobody stole uh, or ran away with a box of Harry Potters. So there are things like that where you you are showing the fact that you have to do something to keep that trust. But otherwise, it's an invisible thing that runs through everything we do. And there is very little chance of anyone stealing anything.
1: But if you had to advise between self-publishing, especially, you know, that there are occasions where the publishing houses say that, oh, you know, we'll respond to you after six months or 12 months or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. some writers never hear back from them. So, yeah. and then they decide that, okay, you know, I'm probably better off uh, self-publishing uh, mm-hmm. this book. Mm-hmm. Is that a good idea? What do you think? I think it is,
0: because if one is going to be able to invest time and energy and some marketing ideas and effort into marketing your own book Uh, and if you consider the fact that selling books is happening a lot online now where a single writer or a publishing house, I mean you both can leverage that space in the same ways if you put the same amount of thinking and money into it perhaps, then what's to stop a uh, self-published book from becoming a bestseller? There's a lot of cases where books have gone on to become bestsellers and then got picked up by another publishing house, which they then felt they needed more marketing support, et cetera, so they chose to go to a publishing house. And yet there are writers who self-published, made bestsellers out of their books and then continue to publish on their own because they said, why should they part with any, any level of earning with anybody else? Uh, mm. That way, I think also that um, there are subjects that perhaps would make better sense self-published. Like if I want to write a biography of my grandfather, because I think mm. he's a wonderful man, he's accomplished a great deal. And I know there are a hundred people in my family who want to read this, maybe a few hundreds beyond who might you know, know him, maybe a few thousands in the world who might be interested, but that's really all. And the way publishing is now, if a book we see is able to sell lifetime, say a thousand or two thousand, doesn't make financial sense to us. We need to get more uh, volume out of it to really make it work. So what is your option then? Your option is to actually self-publish, make a good book happen and allow it to be circulated and sold within that community. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think there is a really good reason why self-publishing came to be as a model and it supplements the ecosystem and allows everything else to Find a place within a publishing house where other services are on offer, like editing, like design, like marketing, like a certain systemic distribution. All of that is made possible, of course. Uh, but if your ambitions are different, and if your need and your market, the the audience you're looking for is different, then self-publishing is a very good route to take.
1: And what is, uh, in your view, the most common reason that drives people to get published? What is it? Is it taking their work to a larger audience? You're
0: the writer. What makes you want to be published?
1: Um, You know, I'm an accidental writer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Most people
0: um, surprisingly are, I think. Accidental? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think so. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think it's just, you know, wanting to uh, have a larger audience. For me, that's the driving Mm motive, for sure. That, you know, you Mm -hmm. want a larger number of people to read and then either agree, disagree. I mean, that doesn't quite matter. But, you know, to be able to sort of take that idea across, it's really the difference between sharing an idea with uh, three of your friends versus, you know, addressing a gathering or versus putting it on mass media. I think it's really that difference. Yeah,
0: I I imagine that's what drives a lot of people um, to be published, reaching readers, reaching a larger set of readers. And what's the better way than a book? Um, but I also think there are, sometimes there are writers who, who feel the need to be validated in the sense that you've written a book and especially maybe fiction or whatever, and uh, you think it's damn good that it deserves to be published, it sees the world, but each time a reader tells you that, a reader you don't know, a reader who happened to read your book in some other context, some other part of the world, for some other part of the country, they read and they tell you what it did to them, that it how it mattered to them or how it changed something in them. I think the kind of, uh, I don't know what word to use. I, I know there's pleasure in it. I'm sure there's satisfaction in it, but I'm also sure no, there's, there's delight in it. That, yeah, there's yeah, delight exactly. Yeah, so I think it's about that as well. It makes your work feel valued and it is valued. And then you go on to write more and to do better. So it becomes a constantly raised bar for yourself because you have all of these anonymous readers out there who you now start building a relationship with. And there are writers I know who, you know, from the first book to the last have readers coming back to them and they become sort of reviewers, critics, their opinion matters. So I think there's a different life that is built. There's a writing and then there's all of that that goes with it. And then there's a second life which actually has to do with a large bunch of people you never see. Uh, And perhaps that is also one of the reasons why writers get published.
1: And does it mean that, you know, when you start to have uh, a relationship with a community of readers, you know, if you will, then does it mean that you start writing only to that set? Or uh, does it limit your own writing style? Because, you know, you kind of know that, Uh, This is really like saying that if a company knows that, uh, you know, I have like X number Mm. of uh, users, consumers, Mm. who like this Mm. kind of a product, then you kind of make more and Mm. more of the products for the same consumers. Uh, Does that happen with writing? Um,
0: It happens when a writer decides to write for the market, for sure. And it actually becomes a bestseller. Then you start walking in that path. Uh, So, for instance, if you've written a thriller and... Mm. It sold very well and you know the price point at which it sold. Suppose a book sold very well, it was 250 rupees or 299 rupees, then you say, okay, I've cracked the formula. Now the rest of my books are going to be this size, it's going to be this kind of pace or these, maybe in a series it's the same character I was going to build to 10 books, 15 books, you know, I'm going to use the same character because he's become so popular. Um, And I'm going to stick with that. But there are sometimes really good reasons to stick with that, because if you've built a character like that and that character has found readers and readers who are faithful and loyal, then you might as well do that. You, you might as well stick with it. Um, but whether it limits the reader, I mean, whether it limits the writer, I'm not sure. I, I think it does good things for them to recognize their own limits and to know that this is where I have the maximum impact of my writing and these are the people who read me. And therefore, it makes sense to write for them. Then there are other writers who's, who just can't stop themselves from writing experimental work or moving genres. Um, I'm thinking of a writer like, say, Anita Nair, who writes literary mm. fiction, who also writes historical fiction, who also writes poetry, who also writes essays, children's sure. books. um, And and she's also got this whole Inspector Gowda series, which are crime thrillers out and out.
1: Right, um, right. I think
0: a writer like that uh, refuses to be boxed in or, you know, into one slot and she would she would resist that herself. I mean, you see how Vikram said he writes uh, poetry, he writes haiku, he writes, he translates Chinese poets, he writes the big novel. Um, there are writers who will always, I think, put their own satisfaction and creative energies first and then look at what the market wants.
1: The opportunity to build self-awareness is important for success in any career or any profession. And of course, writers also have the need to understand a lot of it, uh, you know, before they can become successful. Because what is super appealing to you as a writer is not what is appealing to a reader or the other way around. The examples of Anita Nair and Vikram said actually led me to think that maybe even as a writer, you have to make a choice between being a specialist or a generalist so a specialist could be someone who writes uh, one kind of books, you know, you only write murder mysteries, or you become a generalist who shifts styles, genres, and formats and self-awareness, therefore, is something that matters in every field every career, even in writing and which is a, you know, manuscript that you rejected and uh, it sort of became a big uh, hit somewhere what would that be?
0: (laughs) Oh, no I should not, no, 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 no (laughs) Um, well, I can think of one example clearly, uh, which is not about rejecting, but about having uh, not uh, understood the potential of the book in terms of sales enough to have paid the kind of advance that at that point one could have paid uh, and got the book for. But my colleague who heads up sales and me, we just didn't see that it would, you know, be allowed. I mean, we, we would. Be able to take that advance up so high that the numbers could be so high, but it went on to sell way more than we had imagined, which was uh, Chitra Divakaruni's Palace of Illusions, the book
1: oh, that uh,
0: has become a big hit. And a yeah, yeah. And
1: we, it's a lovely yeah, book.
0: Yeah, and we didn't see those numbers. I mean, we, we went far enough, we thought, and we did put out money for it in advance, but we didn't see the huge hit coming, and that um, I think was one of the mistakes,
1: yes. Um, And, and, you know, how many books does one need to sell to be able to feature in a bestseller list? At which stage? Uh, I mean, and and does it vary by language that, I mean, you know, so let's say it's number of books. So what would that be?
0: Um, Not only does it vary by language, it varies by uh, genre. So if you're looking at, uh, say, fiction and commercial Hmm. fiction, then Hmm. you need to sell several thousand copies, like, maybe 20, 30, 50, uh, to be able to say it's a bestseller. Uh, Whereas if you're looking at, say, popular history or uh, books like that, which are nonfiction but also for a popular market, then I think if you went up beyond 10, 15,000, then you are like a really good seller. It's definitely a bestseller. So it does depend on the category, which, uh, say, for instance, also uh, if you're doing a children's book, then – I would say you definitely could sell ten to twenty thousand if you are uh, doing a, a f- especially in the Western market. I guess there you're looking at hundreds of thousands of copies selling. In India, we're still so limited that, for instance, online you will see um, something is a bestseller today, and hmm. look at the numbers at the back end, You know that it's probably sold ten copies that previous day to move it to bestseller.
1: Yeah, because every time you know you find so many people who say that. My book is a bestseller. Which one of these should you trust? Uh, is there an official kind of a ranking that you should Yeah, the only
0: at? one that really does sort of decent job of it is Nielsen. The Nielsen mm-hmm. Book Scan Report, which uh, mm-hmm. we get weekly reports of and we can access and know how things are moving. But even that covers a certain part of the market. It doesn't cover every store, every retail outlet. So we have to extrapolate from that to tell what it could have sold. So you might say on the data that you get, if something has sold 100 copies, you may be able to tell if it's a commercial novel that sells across bookstores and maybe even sells in like a little store in the neighborhood, which is nowhere being calculated for data or assessed for data, then it might be three times what the data is showing you. But if it's a book that is mostly selling out of the big chains or you know, where visibility uh, is available, then you might say it's probably sold like 1.5 to two times what the data is showing you. So each one has its own assessment.
1: Kartika, this has been absolutely phenomenally educative for somebody like me, even <laughs> though I've, you know, worked with you for so long. I don't think I knew the answer to any of these questions. And this is uh, really nice that uh, you've taken the time and talked to our readers. And if they wanted to reach you, where could they find you? Uh, I want you know Twitter, what is the
0: which is probably the easiest way to find me uh, publicly.
1: Uh, and your Twitter handle would be Kartika VK. Kartika VK. V yeah. for Vitri, K for, K for kudos. kudos.
0: I hope it is correct what I've just told you, but I think I'm right. <laughs> I never can remember whether I wrote it as VK or KV. I mean, or <laughs> yeah.
1: no, it's it's Kartika VK for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, thank you so much, and uh, you know, look forward to. Um, your feedback and comments and uh, thank you so much listeners for joining in and we'll be back very soon with another episode next week of Dreamers and Unicorns Season 2 Until then, stay connected, stay curious Goodbye So, don't forget to tune in every Wednesday Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0 has been produced by HT Smartcast To give it a listen, log on to htsmartcast.com or huh. अरे सुनिए जरा नए नजरिए से क्या फिर मिलते हैं जल्दी
0: This was an HT Smartcast original.